If you want to support our podcast financially, please visit patreon.com slash IIMBSB. Also, email us with questions or ideas at ifimaypodcast at gmail.com. On today's episode, we give you the second half of our discussion with Hannah Smith exploring the 1997 book and sensation, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It's a great conversation, but if you haven't heard part one, you might want to stop and go back to last week's episode for context. After that, we discuss chapter two of Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity, where we look at the tension between intimacy and closeness and how it can be at odds with passion, lust, and desire. Welcome to If I May Be So Bold, a podcast about relationships. The ones we have with others, the one we have with ourselves. And given that Dan and I are a couple, you're going to be hearing about our relationship too. I'm Dan Epstein, a recording artist, former opera singer, and relational coach. I'm Justin Waring Crane, a therapist, recovering perfectionist, and karaoke star. interesting that this book comes from this idea that he had these these experiences in dating that were messy and intense because like yeah like dating and and desire and like connection and intimacy when you're so young it feels really intense um and like that is that is a shared thing but it's interesting to me the way yeah that like faith is offered as this way to sort of soar above all that. I think that's so insightful. I kind of, I think that I felt that a little bit when I was rereading the book, because you're right. It's like, he takes something that is true, which is that, you know, he probably did get his heart broken when he dated that woman, that girl for two years. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's so tricky and hard and we can all sort of understand what that feeling is like. And it's not a good feeling. And, um, it did feel like he kind of used this ideology and this, this whole created this whole like culture around avoiding it, avoiding experiencing something difficult and messy that makes you, that isn't black and white or that isn't Mm -hmm. right or wrong. That isn't so clean cut and binary, like so much of, uh, what is taught in, you know, that culture of Christianity is. Um, I mean, so it's like an easy little like answer to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah, like we talk about on our, on this podcast that just like the ways in which a relationship requires, you know, getting uncomfortable and like work and like time and like, um, vulnerability, whatever, all these things that are like more of the modern sort of view of relationships. And I guess the, this other version, this older old fashioned version is like, if you serve, if you are of service as a person in a relationship, like then the relationship will flow. Is, is that like how you guys see it? 
Like I'm definitely interested in this idea of like you're serving God and you're serving um, other people by making their life easier or something by not being selfish. Is like, is it kind of that by not being like self-serving? Maybe that's some of it. I think that it's kind of convoluted in the book and that like the idea of being selfless is the idea of not giving into your own desires and like sexual desires. Mm. So like he, in the book, I don't know that he believes this now, but in the book, the books, he would associate that with selfishness. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the idea of being selfless is very like commingled with the idea of purity, which is confusing. But yeah, I think that in that context, it's, um, being, not paying attention to what like your own like desires, which would be, which like desire, like especially like specifically sexual desires, which would be um, put in the context of, or the category of things of the world, not of God. So like Mm. there's like a verse in the Bible that says something like we're in the world, but not of the world. So you're supposed to be separate. Mm. So that would be like a worldly desire. Mm. And by paying attention to that and giving that attention in your life, you're selfish by being, by doing what you're supposed to do or what God is supposed to want, you know, your perception of what God thinks you should do, that is associated as being selfless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I feel like Dan, maybe you've seen like these bumper stickers on cars that it's like not of this world, but I don't know if you would know that. No, I don't, I don't know. About I'm going to point them out to you because okay. Hannah, you've probably seen them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, it's like a sort of logo. I'm going to show them to you, but cool. yeah, it's, yeah. It's like the idea that there's like, there's worldly desires, which includes sexual desires. And then there's, you know, what's wholesome and godly and pure. Yeah. Um, and there's not like an integration of the two, which, which feels sad to me because it's like clearly God made our bodies. He made our desires. He made our sexuality. And it's like, yeah, like maybe he knows that you're going to feel sexual and even wants that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, Justin, Um, you had talked about reading that the book and then being in this relationship and continuing to have sex, but still, but feeling really like guilty about it. Like, you know, even if you intellectually, I guess, when did you really start to feel like the messages of that book and of that, you know, of the broader culture of these messages that you started to separate yourself, like truly be able to not feel that anymore? Like how long did that take for you? I think it's still, it's still happening, you know, because even, you know, that, that time in my life where I was feeling really intense guilt, that was probably like ages 17 to, I don't know, 25. Um, Partly because my parents were still so invested, especially my mom was still so openly invested in me not having sex until I was married. And then she through her own work and her own therapy and her own self-realizations was like, you know, if you want to invite your boyfriend 
home to stay with me and Ken, me and, you know, it's like her and my dad, like you can do that and that's okay. You know? Were you and surprised? That was, huh? Were you surprised? I was really surprised. <laughs> yeah. Cause <laughs> I was really surprised. That was probably when I was in my late twenties, I guess, you know, I'm in my early thirties now. So like that, not that long ago. And what does, would the, the meaning behind that would be like you and your boyfriend could sleep in the same room? In the same room. Yes, exactly. So it's like, you know, until that point, you know, bringing a boyfriend home meant that, yeah, we would be sleeping in different rooms if we stayed overnight. So yeah, it's, it's still a process because like we've talked about and like so many other people talk about who have similar upbringings, like there's no switch that you can flip to say like, okay, I, I used to see sex as dirty and bad and wrong. And now that I am married or now that I'm, you know, in a, now that I see my relationship is okay, uh, it's free and it's flowing and it's natural and, and wonderful. Not like, shame driven. And not shame based. Yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, Nadia, Nadia Boltzweber, I don't know if I'm saying her name correctly, but she wrote a book called Shameless. That's all about this exact stuff, you know, within the context of religion and, um, sort of, she interviews people who, um, who were brought up in the church and who stayed on the path, right. Of I'm not going to have sex until marriage. I'm going to remain pure as it's defined by this community. Um, she interviewed these people who then got married and were like, this doesn't work. You know, this, this isn't (laughs) like, I didn't get what I was promised, which was, I was going to have like amazing, incredible sex once I was married. Yeah. So her book was really important for me. I read that probably a few years ago. Um, and you know, my parents own acceptance because everything about growing up in the church was funneled through the opinions and the, um, approval of my parents. So when that started to shift, that was really healing for me. Um, but it's still, it's still challenging because I still find myself feeling embarrassed of what I want and sheepish when it comes to asking for that. So yeah, it just takes, you know, practice and like having a supportive partner like Dan to be like, yeah, like this is so wildly embarrassing. I don't know why I feel embarrassed and I'm now embarrassed that I'm embarrassed and, (laughs) but Mm. I'm still going to like try to do it. And, and getting that like really safe container of Dan to put that in. And, um, that's really healing. What about for you, Hannah? What's that been? Yeah. Same question for you. I mean, that's so great. I, I, I would love to read that book. That sounds so interesting. Um, I think that it's kind of same. Like I would say there's still some work to be done and, you know, there sometimes it'll crop up on me and it'll be surprising. You know how, like, how things go where you can feel like you've healed a lot. And then sometimes it's still there, but you know, going through my divorce really helped me a lot with it. Um, because, um, you know, I, I mean, I was thinking about this today because 
I think that one of the reasons that I feel so passionately about not just this book, really, like it's more so about like the culture of um, everything we've talked about is because it really, to me, played very much into my like my marriage um, because it wasn't the only reason I got married. Not at all. Like I really loved my ex-husband and we, I still do like, we have a great relationship, but, um, we never, we never had a good sexual relationship. And even before we were married, I could tell that I knew that like there was something that I, it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't, there wasn't chemistry in that way. And I think part of it was that I just like loved him so much. And so I still move forward. Um, but there was also a very distinct part where like I had had all this sex with other people in my early twenties and really tried to break free from this idea that like that was damaging to like explore my own sexuality, but it was so hard to break free from. And I really felt deep inside that like I had kind of like fucked up by going and having sex with people And then there was some part of me that felt like I was coming back to what I should be doing, the right thing, by being with this person who I wouldn't go on to have no sexual satisfaction with. Um, And and so then, like, being in a relationship with someone for seven years and potentially looking forward to this could be the rest of my life, I think really, like, at the end, I just was able to be like, this is bullshit. This is such bullshit. This is not healthy for me. I've been lied to. And Mm. I had a lot of anger about it. And Mm. also like really a lot of helpful therapy and um, really felt like I started to like create a healthy relationship with myself and my own body and my own sexuality. Like that was sort of the beginning of that journey. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that experience. And I'm grateful that like, um, that I got, that I had also like a really wonderful ex-husband friend to go through it with because he, he was yeah. on his own, own journey. But, um, sure. but yeah, I mean, so I do feel like I've, I feel like a lot more free in that area now, way more than I used to be. And it's like so wonderful and beautiful. And, um, I just hope that anyone that's still in that can, can, Yeah. I mean, just being being able to see your body is a good thing and your, you know, my sexuality is a good thing is so huge. Like something I would never have thought of when I was a teenager. So still, still work to be done. But I think it's why I'm passionate about the subject because I really do feel like it, it it was such a thing to start to overcome in my life. Like truly. Mm. Yeah. I love hearing you talk about that. It's really, it's really powerful. I just think about any relationship, how it's really hard if one person in any relationship like doesn't know what they desire, right? Like it makes it hard to be a partner to that person too. And it makes it hard to like help each other and, and yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, make each other feel good, obviously. Like I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm, we had Mia Schachter on last season who's a consent educator and I'm doing a training with them and we were talking about these types of consent and one of the types of consent is like like more murky when it's people who know each other 
and they were talking about the dynamic that can happen when someone's like when both people are really easygoing where it's like what do you want to have for dinner and the other person's like i don't care whatever what do you want you know and it's like that's sort of that's sort of presented as if we're just being selfless like we're just being accommodating of the other person but what mia was saying was that's actually you know a way to um not take responsibility for making a decision and then like what how the decision is going to impact other people um it's like trying to defer the responsibility elsewhere of that which i that really hits because my family there's a lot of whatever you want it's fine like i don't know yeah yeah it's definitely like it can be a vulnerable thing to say what you want i mean it is a very vulnerable thing right even if it's something like right. i want to eat here i want to do this um and then like gets way yeah. more vulnerable if you're talking about like intimacy right? right but like the fact that not only are you being a good partner by not like being selfish or like stating your desires or having desires but you're also gonna go to heaven <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man oh man i would like to talk about just his arc and like who he is now great. if we can yeah yeah um, i'm up for but great. Um, I, I i have time i'm not in the rush okay yeah um i mean i kept like wavering in my cynicism towards him about the fact that he has remained a public figure throughout this whole thing, you know, and that is like a, obviously a hard thing to navigate for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Justin was saying before we started that listening to him talk, she was kind of coming around to him. So maybe Justin, do you want to talk? Well, about yeah, that? I think it's important to say that, you know, um, if I have the timeline wrong, then uh, I'm going to hell, but uh, in 2019, he kind of renounced the book. That was the timeline that I picked up. Um, he has since unpublished the book, so it's no longer being printed. Although you can still buy it on Amazon. You can still buy it on Amazon. I got it for free because I had a gift card. <laughs> Don't buy it with your own money. That's what I'm saying. Um so I don't know, you know, what happened for him. And I'm actually in the process of trying to be a private investigator um, and figuring out what happened. But he has kind of done a 180. He has apologized mm-hmm. to people for writing this book and for harming people uh, with all of the messages, uh, which started. On Twitter, actually, somebody talked about how this book was weaponized against them. And he responded directly to them saying, I'm so sorry. And mm-hmm. uh, then everyone was like, wow, Josh Harris is apologizing. And right. that's cool, but it's also not enough. And and he also said about that interaction, this person messaged him or tweeted him, said this, yeah, this was weaponized against me. And he said, I'm so sorry. And then he said that the person said... That's the first time a religious leader has ever admitted that they've done something wrong and apologized. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sad and also not surprising. Um, So, yeah, I 
and I really appreciate it because he obviously does really feel sorry. And he's of course now an adult with a fully developed frontal lobe, which he was not when he wrote (laughs) this book that sold millions of copies and Mm -hmm. (laughs) told everybody else how to live. So he's now had the time and space to reflect on that. And, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Where was I going? This is okay. So he's done a 180. He said, my book was really harmful. I don't really believe these things. Uh, one source that I read said that he is now saying he's not even a Christian anymore. Um, he began to make this documentary or did make this documentary. It's kind of unclear to me now, um, called I survived. I kissed dating goodbye where he goes around and interviews people who survived the book and it's really harmful messaging. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I've now kind of lost my Did thread. Did he get divorced but too? So yeah. Okay. Yes, that, yes. So he and Shannon rest in peace, Josh and Shannon, they're not dead, but their relationship is dead. Um, <laughs> well, all that, that, as it was, all that least. sex they had on their honeymoon, <laughs> I guess yeah. wasn't enough. Um, so yeah, I I mean, I think it's worthwhile listening to the interview that, um, he did on Nadia Boltzweber's podcast, which is called the confessional. Um, she's the one who wrote shameless that book that I really love. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, like I said, I was really like kind of, I kept, changing sort of my feeling towards him as I was watching him he's like a business leader now which like he's got like and like the way I see him is like throughout the the constant from his young days with the book and then to now is like this seems like a guy who really wants to like feel like he's a good guy and like he's doing good things um like that was very present in that as this young man being like pious and you know romantic and like you know faithful Mm. and now he's still like in his ted talk he has this very benevolent energy it seems like i project onto him that he's really afraid of his shadow like coming out Mm. even though he's been through like obviously this major collapse and like changing all these things like he's still like you can tell like his demeanor his body language the way he uses his voice is like pure like warmth and like understanding you know Mm. which was striking to me and the documentary thing is weird to me a little bit because it's like so all these people can kind of tell him to his face how they fucked up I feel like that is kind of weird because it's like he is trying to atone for the harm he's caused so like the way the documentary has been described I've seen is like he becomes very sympathetic, right? Because you're seeing these people like kind of pour it on with him. So then like he becomes more the victim in some way. And I think that's weird. Even though I've never seen the documentary, but the way it was described was kind of like, huh, I don't know. That seems like a messy thing. Like that seems complicated. Hmm. Like they, they could, he could not be in the documentary, you know, like (laughs) it could just be about the people who are harmed, but it's like he is there in every 
part of it, it seems uh, like. So he's on the receiving end now. Right. I, I don't know. What do you guys I, think Well, about I that? haven't seen the documentary and I want to hear your thoughts, Anna, but I have not seen the documentary, but I do feel like that's a choice to be like, yeah, I'm now a central figure in the documentary and I'm kind of centering my own experience as... Mm oh, what was me? I was 21. I didn't know what I was doing. And it's like, yeah, I feel sorry for you because you were in a sense, you were a victim Mm -hmm. of this, this culture and this community. Um, and you kind of, in order to feel good about yourself became this mouthpiece for messages that made you feel better about yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just like, this is all, I'm not saying his apology isn't worth anything. I'm just saying like, you did make a shit ton of money. (laughs) And if you're really sorry, like I want to see some of that money in my bank account as reparations. Like, yeah. Yeah. What, what are do you, you doing with that money? I mean, I don't right. know actually, maybe he is doing something, but yeah, I, I feel similarly. I mean, I do think that it's good that he's apologized and he's good that he's acknowledged mm-hmm. that this was harmful. Um, but yeah, there's still a little bit of the like self-promotion aspect of it that does yes. like kind of bother me, I guess, or just, yes. you know, he's, I haven't seen the documentary either, so I got to go watch that, but it also yeah. sounds like it's a redemption tour and like he's still making it about himself. And by the way, that's such a Christian thing to do. <laughs> There's so many pastors <laughs> who've like had affairs with someone for years right. and then they are shamed and then they do their redemption tour and reinvent themselves and mm-hmm. start a new business or whatever. That's fine. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a path to change. There absolutely should. Um, right. I, maybe I'm just a little bit allergic to the way he talks, the way he's sort of still spinning ideas and trying to influence people to me, feels like it's born of the same like seed of what he was doing before. Right. That's That's like, okay. So it's like, I'm yeah, I, I do feel this. It's like, okay, how can I be good? Well, (laughs) I'm being told that to be good, I have to stop dating and approach romantic relationships in this way. And now it's like, okay, that didn't work. But now to be good, I have to renounce all of that and say Mm -hmm. that I am sorry. And, you know, it's like, okay, so are we still just falling into like, you're either good or you're bad. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that's all the same paradigm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do feel skeptical about it and I, I want to spend more time with it because yeah, I, this has been so, such a huge theme in my own therapy. It, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, maybe I'm headed in the right direction, but am I now just saying that I'm a good person because I'm, you know, taking better care of myself where before I wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it gets very confusing. You're saying like your own your own grappling with being good, like doing the right things. Right. It's like, like are still connected to the old yes, way of thinking. It's like, it's so easy to slip yeah. back into, um, the paradigm, like the, the extreme black and white thinking of like, yeah, 
okay, maybe what I'm doing now is healthier from, for me, but I'm still judging myself on the same scales of I'm either good or I'm bad. And now it's like, it used to be because, oh, I'm good because I'm serving my community. And now it's, oh, I'm good because I'm taking care of myself, but it's still within that same Mm -hmm. construct. That's actually really harmful. Yeah. Yeah. Today, mm-hmm. we are diving into chapter two of Mating in Captivity. How do you want to get into it? Well, let me just read you a little quote. Okay. Love enjoys knowing everything about you. Desire needs mystery. What comes up when you hear that? When I hear that, I mean, it's great. It's provocative for me. Um, I think, you know, the model I was raised with was always like closeness, closeness, closeness in terms of spending time together, um, familiarity, comfort. So I didn't really, yeah, I think I wanted that um, for myself because it's what I knew. Mm. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And... I guess what comes up for me is I think about a relationship where mystery and distance can exist and it's exciting to me. It also requires a lot of trust, I think. Like I'm just thinking of pitfalls or like conditions that would make that a hard thing to have. Yeah. You know, anxious avoidant dynamic, for example. Totally. Even in a secure Attachment, it can yeah trigger feelings of anxiety. Yeah, and I think about us. And when I was reading this chapter, I was having, yeah, I was having fear come up a little bit. Um, thinking about, you know, you're living with me now. And thinking about, like, for example, you know, we're figuring out what we're going to do over the holidays. And mm-hmm. I was just, like, having thoughts of, like, maybe it's bad that it's just assumed we're going to do these things all together. Mm. You know, like I don't like I, on the one hand, it's like really nice in the holidays Mm -hmm. to just like be tucked, tucked away somewhere with your partner. Mm -hmm. Um, But in general, I think it was bringing up thoughts of just like, I, you know, to have that autonomy, I think that could be an important thing of just, making plans like not defaulting I guess not defaulting and like I haven't really been in the headspace of like ooh, maybe I'll plan something with a friend you know Mm -hmm. in terms of like a trip or like a weekend away whatever but I think I I desire to make make a space for that me too yeah I like that you said that yeah, because it's it's hard, right? Because it's like there's so many things that I want to do with you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like I don't want that to be the most important thing. Yeah, and you know what she expresses in this chapter that I found really compelling is that when a couple starts dating, 
that there's like a built built in separateness. Mm -hmm. So if you start like falling in love with someone or being intrigued, um, connecting, dating that this separateness is there. So it's actually kind of this thing you're trying to overcome where you're like, or, you know, you might be having thoughts around, is this person going to call it off at any moment? You know? So it's like, you're, you're working with that fear or it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, like fantasizing about what it would feel like to have the relationship turn into something really deep, mm. but you don't have that in your hand, right? Yeah. You, that's something that could elude you. Yeah. So you're working to, you're working against that force yeah. in a way. Yeah. She says in the beginning, you can focus on the connection because the psychological distance is already there. It's part of the structure. But when two people become fused, connection can no longer happen. Connection. Because there's, there's oh, nothing okay. to connect to. It's like you've become one person. So mm. what are you even connecting to outside of yourself? Yeah. And I think the fact that you moved in with me recently is like, this is a very relevant theme for us. And so I think having those feelings of like, I don't want to fall into that pattern or like, I don't want to lose my sort of sense of like having an adventure on my own in my own life still. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that now is this thing that goes away. Yeah. That's scary to me. And then, yeah. So this chapter also a big part of it is talking about that in the past, a lot of people have put forward the idea that your intimate life and your sexual life were like, if not the same, directly linked. So like if you had an issue with your sex life, for example, that something was missing in that, that was like a manifestation of something, you know, that's not working in your intimate connection or like in your relationship, like at large. And what Esther is saying is that that is not how she sees it. She sees it like these are separate entities. For some people, they are actually an inverse interaction where if you have too much closeness, too much intimacy and what she calls comfort love, that that actually spells death for lust, passion, etc. Yeah. Yeah. She says that what, contrary to what many couples therapists have claimed over the years, increased emotional intimacy is often accompanied by decreased sexual desire. And on the flip side, you can have really good sex with someone and mm. not have a lot of intimacy with them. Right. Like that could be the area where you get the only intimacy really. <laughs> Yeah. It's from physical carnal. Yeah. And maybe even because you're, yeah. you don't feel intimate with them. Right. That makes the sexual connection more exciting. Yeah. You know? I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, but I remember this just sent me back to earlier when we were dating, you telling me that in the past you had used sex as a way to like get reassurance. Mm, yeah for maybe where their intimacy wasn't forming. Bingo. <laughs> Didn't work. 
<laughs> Not that anyone was surprised by that. Yeah. Um, were you going somewhere with that? That no, it just seems relevant. Like oh, I don't okay. know. Like you, that was your experience, right? Yeah. Like I you thought, were seeking something. Yes. I thought, you know, if if sex is this avenue to connection and closeness, if we just have more sex, then we're gonna feel closer. Mm-hmm. Um but it didn't go so well. <laughs> and you were maybe um, seeking to have some more control in the relationship too, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. And I think with intimacy in general, you know, I think that that is probably pretty consistent with a lot of people of closeness, comfort, merging we know everything that's going on. We're doing mm. everything. We're planning everything. Like yeah. constant reassurance, like reminder, <laughs> like we're together, we're together, we're together. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we're, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And, that's scary. Yeah. And what a, what a hard thing to navigate because mm-hmm. it's like what we're talking about is like, you want to have that experience of I'm going out on my own. I'm having this experience separate like i'm feeling my autonomy i'm feeling like i'm having this you know individual existence and then mm-hmm. when i come back with my partner i'm like excited to return with this energy i've been infused with yeah. from having this other experience and mm-hmm. it's like feeding something mm-hmm. right but in order to have that you have to have some trust mm-hmm. right you have to have um a relationship where there's communication where your wanting separateness isn't going to feel like a threat yeah. to your partner. Yeah. And if you have a really intense abandonment wound, you might be really uncomfortable with your partner saying, no, I'd actually rather not be with you this evening. I'd rather go do something else. Yeah. 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 We talk about, you know, in these more extreme situations where one person has been abandoned and the other person feels more secure and doesn't have a history of being abandoned, you know, even their partner turning away from them in bed, Mm -hmm. like turning and facing the other way is like they're back feeling abandoned all over again. Just in that simple, um, just body gesture so or like leaving the room like I've talked to people who it's like when my partner leaves the room as soon as they walk out I'm like they're losing interest in me you know it's like oh that's really really tough yeah you know yeah and this goes to I think that things that get formed early in a relationship where we're making all these agreements silently like when I'm going to do this for you yeah and I think about the first time you and I went to the mountains with, mm-hmm. with friends, like to this house in the mountains. And I remember... Just with I, one friend, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that was probably that trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Case. Um, hey, Casey. And uh, I remember, because it, it had been so long since I'd been in a long-term relationship. I remember we were hanging out, the three of us, Justin, as she's very reliable to do <laughs> went to bed earlier than everyone else <laughs> um and i remember like i had my nervous system like 
mm. like did something and it was because it was flashing me back to my old relationship mm. in my 20s when my partner at the time would go to bed earlier mm-hmm. and I would feel like this rush like I couldn't be present anymore because mm. I felt like for a few different reasons mm-hmm. I want I needed to like join her in bed soon mm. you know and I wasn't at ease because some agreement had been made or some or there was some fear on my part mm. of like getting my needs met mm-hmm. that I didn't know I was having a stressful situ- stressful experience really at the time but mm-hmm. looking back it feels very clear right sometimes when you you need to not have a stressful experience right mm-hmm. around a certain thing like when you didn't feel s- super stressed that yeah. I was going to bed first and that yeah. you wouldn't to reflect yeah that you're like huh why does this feel different oh that other time was actually really stressful yeah 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 it's like I'm having the logical understanding of like everything's actually fine. I don't need to do anything, Uh even though my nervous system is telling me something. Yeah. Saying something. Your nervous system is like, oh, this feels like that other time, but are we, are we going to be okay? Is everything okay? And you were actually Mm -hmm. able to be like, yeah, everything is okay. Like we're good. Yeah. 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 Um, so interesting. I hate that word. I hate myself for saying it. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. So in this chapter, you know, it's, it's fucking great. She's Esther. God, I love you. Um, she talks about, you know, that it's, it, it's just love and desire. They're just at odds with each other and intimacy and eroticism are at odds with each other. So, um, once you have that thing that you wanted, Mm -hmm. you know, intimacy, closeness, that relationship with the other person, then it's very hard to, to desire them. So it's like, you feel like you, you have them. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of remind yourself that like, no, you don't like you never fully have ownership of this other person even if you have a secure connection with them um and that's something i have to remind myself of because i can feel like yeah everything's so stable you know like dan's just always going to be there you know and that's not even that's not true but and it's actually good that i feel like you're you're going to be around Mm -hmm. but it's it also can make me feel like not excited or like, Mm -hmm. like what's, what's even, what's there to pursue, you know? Um, so I, I do find that like, if you are more aloof or you, you know, take time and do things on your own or whatever, like make plans that don't involve me. Um, it's like, it's nice to have this feeling of like wanting to go get you and like missing Mm -hmm. you or kind of yeah. Wanting to chase you, but not in a way that's like, oh, does he still love me? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Should we get into some of the like anecdotal stuff? Um, interesting. We could. Yeah. No, you don't think so? Well, you know, let's just, yeah, let's share, share one of the anecdotes. That, okay. That stare. So one of the, one of the anecdotes in this chapter is about a couple, um, and she was saying, she was expressing this like this is really common for her patients. Couple starts dating. 
strong connection, strong desire, like compatibility is really good. Uh, John and Beatrice. They basically just. I said Beatrice. Beatrice. (laughs) Trist. But they have like a crazy good like sexual connection, Mm -hmm. sexual chemistry. So they're basically just in bed for six months. Yeah. And eventually um, they're getting all their needs met. It's good. They're they're together. Like they're firmly together. And he, John comes into her office and is like, everything's great. Like lover, like comfortable, compatible. We work really well together, but we never have sex. Yeah. They've moved in together at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's confusing, right? Because they're in love and everything's working. So shouldn't that mean that they're having good sex and actually, you know, having it sometimes? Yeah. I I didn't say that in a cool way. Uh, (laughs) Shouldn't it mean that they're having sex too, if their relationship's working? Right. Um, No. So it's, it turns out that John feels trapped in the relationship because Mm -hmm. as Beatrice has come to rely on him more, it's reminding him of how his own mother relied on him for emotional support. Yeah. And so the more that Beatrice you know, leans on John, the more, the less attracted he is to her. Yeah. So this is a situation where Esther is trying to find a way to create more separateness. More separateness, more individual individuation. Yeah. So for some people, like for, there's a different anecdote in this chapter, she might prescribe stop touching each other and displaying affection so much. Yeah. Because that type of thing of closeness, killing desire that's like a small way a couple could try and create more separateness where there's, there's something there. There's that thing we're describing of like room to want to go get your partner. Yeah. It's like, it's interesting. I I think about us and I think about how there's times where I reach for you or I want to like get close and like snuggle or like sit on you or hug you. And it's like, yeah, this feels so nice. I'm doing this because it feels really good. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's like, it's not coming out of like, (sighs) like, I just want to grab you. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's a different feeling. Yeah. Um, It's not that I'm not desiring you, but it's, it's just like, uh, it's like, it's like putting on like a a warm blanket, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's, I think the comfort, the comfort love, which isn't bad. You know, I want to say it's not bad. No. And in fact, that. like, you know, I like, I'm thinking about that, like study, I think it was at Stanford or Harvard. One of those. Like, of like, uh, that like one of the, you know, one of the biggest factors in living long and healthy is like being loved, you know? Yeah. So it's not a small thing, Yeah, but you want both, right? Like, yeah. you don't, I mean, it just feels like death to me the idea of like eliminating uncertainty and and passion and excitement it is death it's death so for john and beatrice she prescribes that beatrice move out of john's apartment because beatrice has kind of stopped seeing her friends she stopped doing her own thing john is really her whole world at this point and so beatrice moves out and like starts a PhD program, like starts seeing her friends again, you know, is, is more autonomous. And then that allows 
her and John to come back together in a way that's much more alive and mm-hmm. where they're not. And she, she says like Beatrice is no, no longer organizing her life around. Yes. John, which is kind of what we were talking about. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I relate to that. Yeah. And so do you want to talk about how it's going for us in yeah. terms of like, you're living here, but you have your separate room. So we're kind of dancing yeah. between like separateness and yeah. the otherness. Yeah, so we have our separate bedrooms, which was such a good idea. I already know, even though it's only been a month. <laughs> it's been, uh, I mean, it's just, I don't even know. How, I don't know how we would mm-hmm. have made it work the other way. I mean, I'm sure we would have figured yeah. it out. But if you could do separate bedrooms, I really recommend it. Um. It's it's nice for so many reasons. Yeah. I think it builds up that that desire. I do think that when you spend time in your own bed and your own space, then getting in bed with your partner is like ah, mm. uh, like a reunion, you know. Yeah. It's an actual re- reunion. It's it's really it's really lovely. Yeah. And it's like you can have the best of both worlds in a lot of ways because you can cuddle with each other before bed and then I can like go to my own room and have the kind of sleep that I want to have with my body pillow and my my fan blowing and just like getting the room really cold (laughs) and falling asleep and well you wrote sit around and fart sit around and and fart okay so (laughs) you know sometimes you just have really stinky farts and (laughs) you need to sit around and fart and you don't really want anyone else to smell that. Like, I think that's, it's important to have like your own space (laughs) where you can do that. (laughs) Oh, it's huge. I was feeling that the other day because I was like, oh, anyway. Yeah. I was like, thank God I have my own room and like, I'm going to go to bed and like Dan's not going to, I'm not going to be thinking about like holding in a fart. Not that, Dan's always like, let it out. You know, he's not trying to, to make me hold my farts in. Um, but it's just, I don't want that. I don't want that to be our dynamic. Sure. Okay. And cultivating a secret garden. So Esther talks about how everyone should cultivate a secret garden. So a space doesn't have to be a physical space, but a spiritual space, emotional space, an imaginatory realm. That's just just your own, you know, mm-hmm. that you share these essential parts of your life, but essential doesn't mean all essential doesn't mean everything. Yeah. So something happened a couple of weeks ago where I came home and I had had a night of just doing my own thing. And Dan was like, what did you do? And I was like, yeah, I just don't want to tell you because I just, and it's not because of I did anything wrong or anything naughty or anything I need to hide, but it's just that I want to have things that I don't tell you about and I want to have secrets. And how did you feel about that? Can you share? Well, um, I, it alarmed me partially because it was a situation where Justin had been really depressed and like that morning woke up really depressed and then came home that night and was like, seemed really happy and I just was like 
is she like having a crisis? You know what I mean? And like oh. doing something. I don't know. Um, so it just like, it sent me a little bit down a rabbit hole, but then I asked you to tell me just a little more why you weren't telling me. Uh-huh. And then once I sort of, it wasn't just what you said, but just like I could feel the energy uh-huh. of like how you responded to that question. Mm. I was like able to come back to a place of trust with you. Uh, okay. And felt. Yeah. Yeah. But initially it was kind of like unsettling. Right? Yeah. And it was a break of, of pattern. Yeah. 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 There's this quote I really like about um, when you're starting to date someone and it's just like, it's a really a match and it feels like it's, it's, you know, you f- the feeling of falling in love basically where Esther says, you see me as I've never seen myself and I like what you see with you and through you. I will become what I long to be, which is like, I think a pretty apt description of what it feels like. And I remember that with Justin feeling like she was noticing things in me that I would not notice in myself necessarily. Cause it's just, I'm, it's my normal, but like feeling appreciated for something that you just like intuitively do, you know, just instinctively do or like a, a behavior or whatever is like so affirming mm-hmm. and it's, it's easy to get really swept away in that. And it feels so good. feels like it, it feels like life is so full of possibility when you're, when yeah. you're getting that. Oh yeah. It's yeah. It's like this whole, you feel like a whole new world is, is opening up to you. You yeah. know, it's like, you can see the world through this other person and see yourself through this other person in a way that's, Oh, it's so exciting. It's so intoxicating. Yeah. 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 Ooh. I, I want to read one more quote. This is kind of toggling back to this idea of comfort love. Esther says the psychologist Virginia Goldner makes an accurate distinction between the flaccid safety of permanent coziness and the dynamic safety of couples who fight and make up and whose relationship is a succession of breaches and repairs. Yeah. I really like that because what I, what I was sort of trained to fantasize about and imagined for myself was the first option the flaccid safety of permanent coziness. Um, That's just what I thought a healthy relationship was. Something very like stable and just like always good and always perfect. And we don't fight. We don't have conflict. And in doing so, maybe you're making agreements to not mirror each other or, or express our true feelings. Yeah. Everything's fine. Everything's always fine. And this is, that means because we're so in love, everything's just like always fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh God. It's good. (laughs) Great chapter. Um, (laughs) Hope you enjoyed it. And that's our show. Thanks for joining us. Our music is by Nightlight. We self-produce this podcast, so please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps.